Hello, everybody. Today, we are talking about artists with disabilities you haven't heard of. If you would like to grow as an artist and you can't afford an art class, we've got everything you need here at ArtProf, critiques, tutorials, and professional development. Well, I think you all know who Lauren is, but guess what? We have a special guest artist today with us, Anna Weider-Blank who is a New York City-based artist working in painting, sculpture, and installation, and also is an artist with disabilities. So, Anna, tell us about your work. What is your work about? My work is very much what you said. I use mythology and biblical narratives um, to create a feminist political allegory uh, that explores intersectionality with uh, issues of identity, life, disability, and like queerness. Um, I'm really interested in collecting characters and narratives from these stories and putting them together to create new worlds. Um, I'm interested in having these characters overthrow patriarchy and create a uh, world that is full of healing from trauma and new ways of educating and living. And I just love materiality too. So I love oil paint and I love clay and I love mixing media and installation work. Some, that's what my work is about essentially. And Lauren, you're actually both in your studio right now <laughs> in New York City. So tell us your how we met story with Anna. Oh, our meet cute. This is our meet cute. So yeah, so Anna has been a uh, member of the Art Prof family for a while, actually. I think you came in during the pandemic, right, Anna? I did. I was, um, I have a lot of chronic health issues. So I moved in back with my parents for six months in Maryland. And like many other people, I was very depressed and very lonely. And I felt like I reached out through the internet, through YouTube, and I stumbled across Art, art Prof some way, um, and I became obsessed with it. And eventually, I felt like I kind of just got to know Lauren and Clara through Art Prof, and I had to meet this person who I knew was in New York, and I DM'd Lauren, and we got together. And now I'm in yeah. my studio. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Anna and I exchanged studio visits about last year, almost exactly. And we really hit it off. And I really like their artwork and the gravity of it, the intensity of it, the colors, the colors. So you guys know that I dress in a particular, very color pattern, maximal way. And so does Anna. And so we, um, you know, we just had a lot in common. And so now we are doing our little studio visit trade-off again. And uh, we're here at Hunter together right now. Anna is in my studio and I'm in the kitchen right outside my studio. <laughs> and Lauren has amazing color too. I'm honestly in awe of Lauren's color use. We, we are mutually in awe of each other. Yeah, we are. Awesome. I can totally see that. Anna, I've always felt that it was tragic that I've never been able to see your work in person. 
because I do get the feeling seeing how much you are engaged in the material and the physical tactility of your media. I feel like I probably see a fraction of that in these photos. So tell us a little bit about all the different media, because this is actually a ceramic piece. Some of the other pieces we saw earlier, this was a site-specific installation. So you're doing all kinds of things and sometimes they're literal 3D that you can walk around and other times they're flatter pieces. I think materiality in addition to color is the common thread that ties my work together. Uh, whether it's oil paints, I work very impasto, thick, viscous uh, texture, or whether it's the texture of clay, um, Anything that satisfies me in a tactile way is something that I've been interested in working in. Um, and you're right, the pictures, unfortunately, are pale comparisons. If you saw the work in person, you could see that it, it often comes inches off the surface. Someday. I'm going to go to New York City and have a big party. I hope so. <laughs> All right. Well, we are here to talk about artists with disabilities. And I know that there are so many facets to being an artist with disabilities. And Anna, one thing that you and I discussed was that in terms of artists that have a lot of visibility with disabilities, there are not that many of them. There are those. Um, Chuck Close is probably the one with the highest visibility. And yet, why do you think that is, Anna, that there's so few in terms of that capital A art world place? I think disability, like any kind of identity, is very much a multifaceted um, phenomenon. There's physical disabilities, there's neurodivergence in disability, there is mental health disabilities. In terms of my own experience with disability, I've dealt with all three of those uh, categories. Um, I think that there's very little understanding about visible versus invisible disability, each of which comes with substantial sets of unique challenges. I've dealt with both of those two. And in the end, I think the art world, much like the world at large, it's just not a very accessible place. There's the spaces that tend to be dominant in the New York art world, which is what I'll speak to because that's the world that I know, are, are not accessible. Uh, it, it's very hard to make connections if, say, like me, you're hard of hearing and you want to go to an opening and meet galleries to meet other artists or curators, but you can't really participate in an opening because you can't hear what's being said or you can't participate because you're exhausted and there's no bench there, and there's nowhere to sit. And so there's just massive barriers to accessibility in the art world and in the world at large. And it's unfortunate, but very few artists have been successful in overcoming those barriers. And that's a systematic failure, not the failure of the artist necessarily. Now, Lauren, you are very much in the New York City art world. And that experience, being at the gallery open, it's packed with all these people. I mean, networking is, I really think it's more than half of what you need to do. I mean, I'm not trying to belittle the studio practice, but that networking yeah. is everything. Yeah, and I think also... <laughs> 
New York, the way that it's set up in and of itself is not very accessible beyond just the galleries. I mean, so many galleries are in a place where you can only get down there with stairs. Mm. Also, the subway, which is the most reliable form of transportation, is very few of the stations have really adequate uh, uh walkways that can be used or or things that you can use either like a walker or wheelchair or anything like that's really not good for physical any physical or mobility aids so just from that standpoint it can be really hard to even get to an event let alone whether the event is set up with uh, the accessible um you know accoutrements for for anybody that's going i mean i'll just say like i've been to many different kinds of galleries and i'm not talking about like funky bushwick or ridgewood galleries that are in a basement I'm talking about new york chelsea high-end blue chip galleries that have tons of space hundreds and hundreds of square foot and they don't have a single bench there's no good reason why they shouldn't have a bench there's no good reason why a space that looks like a warehouse shouldn't have a bench, but many of them don't. And it's a, again, it's a systematic failure that these things are not thought of. It's also, sorry, I, I kind of like was over enthusiastic there, but it's, it's also a thing that is actively worked against. I was just having this conversation in talking about how to put work together for our upcoming thesis show where someone was like, oh, no seating, no seating. That's going to, to distract. And I'm like, this work really is about, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a kind of minimalist attitude where having something where someone can rest on is seen as, mm, no, that is not part of the art. And it's just ridiculous because like, that is such an obvious thing. And <laughs> that would serve a very broad population and you're not going to put a seat in here. Come on. Yep. Can't say it better. We have a comment from Sadie who says recently, my vision has been failing due to, exotropia and associated migraines making art feel impossible nice to see art continues through disability yeah that's something that i i think is really difficult is that there are many disabilities that are invisible you can't see it so you might meet somebody for the first time and you have no idea if they have a disability or not and it, it's i imagine so frustrating anna to have to explain or do I disclose or, or do I just not talk about it? Can you tell us about your experiences with that? Disclosure is always a tricky decision. And I mean, I have a combination of visible and visible and invisible disabilities. Um, people ask, like, I have a chronic eye infection that I have to deal with that I've had since I was three. I, if, you look at me walk, uh, you notice I'd walk with a certain gait. I have a brace that I wear. I got questions like, oh, what's up with your eye? And I have to decide about whether I want to talk about it or not. Or I have to leave an opening because I am struck with social anxiety. 
and I have to decide whether I'm just going to really push myself to try and talk to people or if it's too much. And disclosure is always a very personal decision. I'm of the opinion that it's usually beneficial to disclose, um, that it's usually worth it, and it is a service to the community when you disclose that is important, and that's how we all move forward and progress. But I will say, and I want to make this very clear, that when you have disabilities or you're a member of any marginalized community, the burden of education is always going to be on you. It is not going to be up to the able-bodied people, no matter how allied they want to be, to be fully educated and to have a real grasp of all of the issues that you're dealing with. It's just not going to happen. And so that puts the disabled person in the position where they now have to make a decision. Do they want to spend the emotional and intellectual effort that it takes to educate people? And sometimes it's worth it. Oftentimes it's worth it. Oftentimes I consider it as a, a responsibility. But sometimes it's really exhausting and you don't have the emotional wherewithal and you don't have the patience or the bandwidth to deal with it and so decisions have to be made and it's up to every single person to decide when and how they want to make those decisions. Darian says it feels really good to see others who are neurodivergent living with their disabilities making art and successful and making a difference makes me want to believe that I can do it too. Well, that's where what we talked about earlier about visibility is incredibly important. And I, I totally understand that everybody has to make their own decision regarding disclosure and social media and in-person and all that stuff. That ultimately is somebody's personal choice with how they want to do that. But we have an artist here who is actually pretty high up on the food chain, I would suppose, in the art world <laughs> pyramid. But um, it, it makes a difference when you see people who are making art through all of these experiences. Lauren, I know you are in the New York City art scene and everything, and why does it matter to see people being themselves? Because sometimes people say to me, oh, well, I'm not young and cute, therefore I don't wanna be visible. And I know everybody has a different opinion, but it's like, I wanna see people who are middle-aged. I want to see people who are 75 making art. I think that's phenomenal. This is a thing actually that I was just thinking about when Eloise and I put out our film, Body is a House of Familiar Rooms, um, which is that experience about my partner who has a disability and myself. And that is very isolating and I felt a singular experience, but uh, one thing that we found when showing people the film was that many, many people were going through something or they knew someone who was going, had an invisible disability or chronic illness um, and were just hiding it and trying to stay up on the, the, uh, the capitalist rigmarole. And it's just like, that is a harmful experience to keep that to yourself and try to pass and try to perform at a level that is not 
that that doesn't care about you really and so i think if the the odds are in your life that you are going to experience some kind of disability at some point that is just a part of life and so i think if this was more normalized and more talked about we would have a more empathetic and more accommodating world so that that's why i think it's important i don't think people in the art world are really like they don't share any vulnerabilities that they experience. Right. Everybody's too busy looking flawless. And I, I just think it's really important that we see, hey, not everybody is 25 and cute. I mean, most of us are not. <laughs> That's only a small percentage of the population. I do, and we have a... Mm -hmm. I, I do want to highlight quickly something that Lauren said about passing. Um, I tried to pass as able-bodied for many, many years, and I would do whatever it takes to try to make myself look as able-bodied and um, neurotypical as possible. I would not talk about disability. If somebody asked me about it, I'd change the subject as quickly as possible. And it's taken me a long time to get to the point where I've been able to overcome my own shame about it and where I do talk about directly in my work and I go on streams like this and advocate for people with disabilities. And it's really hard. And, but passing is something that, and some people with disabilities call it masking too. It's something that everybody does to some extent. And it's something that a lot of us have to very actively work through a process of coming, being out as differently abled. On one of my comic characters, undiagnosed ADHD, I too was undiagnosed at the time. Sometimes our disabilities come through in our work, even when we aren't fully aware of it ourselves. Well, Anna, in your own work, your work does talk about disabilities, right? Or correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. And I also am at a point in my life where I, in my career, where I can acknowledge that the disability impacts the making of the work. I, a couple of years back, I would never have admitted that saying that I'm visually impaired in one eye. And so that impacts the way that I see space. So I can't render perspective the way that linear perspective, the way that other people, other artists may be able to. Uh, and, and now I'm at a point and it's taken me a lot of work and sort of unlearning, uh, unlearning internalized ableism to do that. But it comes through both intentionally uh, in terms of making good about my content and also through the workarounds that I've developed to, to adjust my work to my own physical needs. Sentient says, I think it's important for us to think expansively about how we can make our online and in real life communities friendlier to people with different brains and bodies than ours. Now, Lauren, you have way more experience with this than I do, but what are some things that you think people could do? Maybe even something really simple that's not seismic because <laughs> little things matter. I really believe that. Yes, I think so too. There, there are so many things that you can do. First of all, I think that uh, it's it's important to actually 
engage with people, like actually talk with people who do have disabilities and are open about it because being disabled, as we've talked about, is not a monolith. There are so many different cultures and different things and what's right for one person is wrong for another person. So you want to figure out, like, tailor tailor your own actions towards the individual experiences of others. But I think in general, one, there are two documents that I've uh, looked at that I think have been like generally helpful. One of those is the artist Carolyn Lazard has a great accessibility document on their website that has a lot of different actions that one can take to make an event or to make a website or things like that accessible and then the other document that I've looked at is this accessibility guide that is being put together by Alex Chen and I can link to that later but it shows lots of design examples on how to make documents or websites or things like that more accessible and more vision friendly. Bond Links says, I'm constantly beating myself up because I can't keep up with others because of my disabilities. Do you have any pieces of advice for that? Because I, I assume that that's extremely common. Oh, I, I am all the way there with you, Bond Links. I, I, that's basically my everyday lived experiences, trying to compare myself to other people and feeling ashamed and a failure because of it. Um, I think that you, we all have to develop more self-compassion and we have to start thinking outside of capitalist Western standards of success. And actually a lot of my work does have to do with that. I have a whole body of work called the Chronicles of Failure about how I feel like a failure because of those very issues. Um, it, it just develop a mindfulness of compassion to yourself. And obviously this is so much easier said than done. I struggle with it every day. Um, but you are not everybody else. You are yourself and you have to be the best person you can be. Darian says we need more empathic and empathetic and comfort for being who we are. It's hard to be vulnerable when you have to worry about your ADHD, OCD, and other disabilities and feel that you are worthy just as everyone. I mean, the art world is not a nice place sometimes. And I know, Anna, the academia, I feel you here, I'm for different reasons, <laughs> was not kind either to you. Tell us about your experience in academia, Anna. I mean, I've said most of this already, but it's a lot of people refusing to understand why you need accommodations, people refusing to make accommodations for you, people asking incredibly intrusive questions about your physical appearance uh, or the way that you speak uh, that they really have no business asking. People often have... Um, assumed that I'm impaired at times if I feel tired and I'm walking a certain way. I, I got a lot of assumptions about me being complicated because um, when I'm really just tired. Um, 
it's it's a real struggle and it's like i said earlier in the stream it's a constant series of decision making to to decide how much and what you want to disclose and lauren i think we all know here oh boy is there a range of professors some of them don't even try to maybe listen to you or don't give you the offer or the space to say you can tell me. And of course, disclosure, again, it's up to the student based on the situation. But I know that I always said the first day of class, if there's anything about you that I should know that you think might impact your performance, something you want me to know about in advance, please tell me. I felt terrible. I had this one student who's in RISD pre-college, six-week program. I didn't know that she was autistic until I think the fifth week of the program, and I felt terrible about it because I just didn't have the information, yet at the same time, you can't pry. So Lauren, any suggestions for how to navigate that? Yeah, that's it's so hard because schools are supposed to have legal protections to not, uh, or to accommodate as needed any disabilities that a person discloses, but it's so much easier said than done just because of the culture that is at, I wouldn't just say at art schools, at many schools in general, but there's both the boot camp mentality that is just like really hard for any person, honestly, to keep up with, but is like very set up for someone who is generally able-bodied, able-bodied straight white man most of the time to be honest yeah. yeah yeah neurotypical um but i think i'm trying oh one thing one thing that i did want to bring up that i think is related to this that it's it's more great advice that i got from my friend alex is to when you are talking in crit to at least make crit more accessible to keep things as much as you can at a sixth grade language um like to explain any terms that are outside of that and to not like brag on anybody that is not i think this helps just everybody i think it makes the whole culture of the space of the crit space better but uh that's something that has stuck with me especially like in terms of doing my own art writing Brazen Spirituality says, I'm usually reluctant to say I have a disability. I have found it means that I'm asked how, and when I say I am hearing impaired and I have random severe nerve pain and I'm judged as exaggerating. I mean, people are mm -hmm. so inconsiderate and so lazy. I'm like, it doesn't take that long to educate yourself. I'm not saying everybody knows how to do that. There's a lot of misinformation out there, obviously. Speak to the person who you're engaging with. But Anna, I think another thing when it impacts your physical engagement with the artwork, has that ever been the case for you? Because um, certainly so much of art is a physical process. I'm sorry, did you say physical engagement with artwork or art world? Uh, artwork, like the media you're oh, using, yeah. the physicality of painting. I, I touched on this earlier, but yes, it definitely does. Like I, I said a little bit about having, um, being visually impaired on one eye, that impacts the work. I have cerebral palsy so that I have fine motor challenges. 
Like you, you look, you'll notice if you look at my work that it's almost all very big uh, in size. Uh, some of the paintings are like six by seven feet, some are more. It's very thick. There's not a lot of fine detail. Um, and all of that has a reason. And I work the way I work um, because I'm able to use elements in my physical physical physicality that I do have access to like I'm very good at using my body like a dancer to make big expressive uh, gestural paintings and I'm not good at making fine little detailed marks so I use what I have to make up for what I don't have um, and I work around some of the challenges that way. Sentient says striving to make our language accessible is so helpful to everyone including people who may have less fluency in English, people who are stressed and tired, et cetera. Well, I can tell you from a generational point of view, oh my gosh, so many words have changed since, I, I mean, I went to art school in the 90s, okay? All the words that we use today, I didn't use them when I was growing up. I mean, now we say disability. When I grew up in elementary school, they called it handicap. Oof. And so all the words are not the same anymore. And Lauren, I have found that I need to educate myself with that because I'm always worried I'm going to say the wrong word or come across as um, irresponsible. So do you have any tips for how to do that? I just ask the students. I'm like, okay, what do I yeah. say? <laughs> I always take the lead from my students because I figure they're more with it than I am. Like language does change really fast and that's nobody's fault like I have to educate my own parents my siblings educate my own parents so it's kind of try to allow grace where possible and also uh on my own end uh admit that I screwed up when I do screw up and kind of don't linger on it just keep moving on learn and keep moving on I think that's the best way for everybody and I'll also add quickly that Everybody has different preferences. I prefer the term differently abled um, because that acknowledges my abilities more than my disabilities. Some people I've talked to in the disability community find that term condescending. Um, I, I use they, them pronouns and I still make mistakes over other people's pronouns all the time. So it's good to ask um, and, and it's also good to acknowledge when there's a mistake without fixating on it. Right. I mean, I'm exhibit A for somebody who has screwed up because I've had semesters where I have 40 students. I can't remember anybody's name until we're a good six weeks into the semester and trying to keep track of people's pronouns is hard. And so I will say to students, listen, if I mess up, please correct me. And I try really hard. I don't always get it right. But I think it is really important to make people know that you're aware of it. Because I just think as a teacher, people just want to see that you're trying. I think it's okay to mess up as a teacher, but they want to see that you are conscious of that and that you're actively trying to make that a little bit easier for everybody. Now we're talking a lot about in-person interactions, going to a gallery, speaking to a student. Now, Anna, how does this affect social media? Because so much of being an artist now is social media presence and making a website and stuff like that. What's that experience been like for you? 
Uh, well, I'm one of those people until who until very recently did not post selfies at all, ever. I had a blanket policy against it, and I still don't like it. Um, I don't like drawing attention to my physical appearance. I don't like putting up a picture of myself next to my work. I'd rather, I'd rather have people look at the work. Like This was something that I um, had to do. I was in a uh, studio fellowship um, called the Sharpalentis uh, Studio Program a few years ago, and they made everybody take pictures. And it was a professional photographer. And I'm glad I did it because it really forced me to, like, take a stand and I made a choice to you can see I'm wearing an outfit that shows my brace and but it's taken me a really long time to get there um I still am uncomfortable with it I still rather have people look at my work than me um a lot of the choices that I make with the way that I dress with my fashion sense and style the colors and patterns I mean, I just love colors and patterns, but has to do with like drawing attention to aspects of myself that I feel proud of rather than ones that I'd rather hide. Um, so that people think, like, oh, well, look at those cool pants that Anna's wearing rather than look at their brace. <laughs> it's like, right. But it's hard. It's, it's, it's it can be easy. a huge distraction. Yeah. So, Lauren, I, I think everybody <laughs> has issues with how they present on social media. I mean, I can tell you that I love seeing a picture of the artist and I love seeing people who are not cute and 20 years old and stuff like that. I'm sorry, I have nothing against people who are 20, but it's just when you see that over and over and over again, you just start to feel like, well, that's not me, therefore I don't belong. And that's really harmful. Yeah, I think that that's, it's, that's why I like seeing a variety of people online. That's why I do like seeing the selfies of like getting a full version. Cause it's not just like 20 year old hot thin white women that exist online. That's, that's not the world. That's not the world we live in. And, um, that's also why I prefer being in person and doing, say, uh, going to galleries in person and being the artist in person because you kind of see a little bit beyond all of that. But at the same time, I think that personally it's been helpful. I also really like this in terms of like hearing people's stories. I like reading like the captions on social media and stuff. If someone is, say, uh, having struggles with pacing or um, having some insecurity with their work or they are working again or working with their body in like a chronic illness. I want to know that because I feel, I mean, that might be seen, I guess, like as a little selfish because it, it, it helps me, but I think like in general, it's, it helps. I think it makes things look a little bit more real. I think I just I just think it, it feels more real and I appreciate the reality. Emmy says social media is interesting. I know so many people who are able to find and connect with others who share their identity for the first time in their lives because of social media. So while we might get super annoyed with it, I think it has opened a lot of doors for a lot of people. It's just tough because there's obviously also the potential for harassment. Yeah, I mean, there's such a broad spectrum of 
the online world, letting people connect, but also all the terrible things that people do online. So um, Anna, do you, do you find that is stressful in terms of social media because you're vulnerable once you put yourself out there? Sure. I, I, and I'll just say, I agree with Lauren completely. I like seeing people's next to their work and people having a mobility aid and using it proudly. I love to see that stuff too. It's why I started to do it because I wanted to show more of what I wanted to see, but it wasn't easy. Um, I had a few years ago uh, when I, that solo show that you see pictures for came out, I had an interview online with sort of an art world reporter um, person that does like interviews and, uh, and video reviews. His name is James Calm. Uh, came to my show, did an interview. I had 99 really wonderful comments on the YouTube feed and a few of them saying like, oh, well, why is her eye red? Or like, why is she walking the way he is? Or like, what's on her face? And those comments are destructive and they're hurtful and sometimes they really make me feel like no matter what I do or how hard I try, I'll never be able to overcome these factors that are somewhat out of my control. And that's not easy. Um, and it takes a lot of courage to put yourself out there on social media. And I encourage everybody to be out and proud about whatever identity that is not within your normal cis-stray, able-bodied um, uh, construct that we live in in the world. And it's awful because it's like one comment. It's like just those words. They can just absolutely, I think, destroy us. And Lauren, I, I think we've seen that you can have 50 supportive comments, but it's like that one comment can just really make a terrible experience. Yeah, I wish our brains didn't focus on the negativity. It's so hard because those 50 comments that are saying, oh, you're, this is wonderful. Like, that's a lot of, com that's like a lot of good stuff. But I totally also, I, I empathize with that. That's happened to me too, where I've gotten one person that said one thing, or I remember like the one really hurtful thing that one tutorial professor told me, like my first semester kind of thing. And it just ruins everything. And it's, Mm. And especially when it is something that's about your body or the way that you uh, are, you look or you act or anything like that, because we're, we're stuck with our bodies. We have to make peace with the piece of machinery that we have here. So it's just, <laughs> it's like, as Anna said, it takes a lot of courage. It's a lot of, uh, a lot of therapy, a lot of pain. <laughs> There's a book called um, by a queer uh, black activist that I love. Her name is Sonia Renee Taylor um, called The Body is Not an Apology. And anybody who is differently abled or has a non-conforming gender identity or is basically not white should read that book. And anybody who wants to be an ally to those people should also read that book. It's extraordinary and it's changed my life. Great. Everybody, we are doing a registration for a bunch of workshops in March. We have one this Saturday. How do I price my art? You want to get in, in the next few days if you want to join us for that workshop. 
We have a couple new ones, transforming your art into merch and prints, art and money, our favorite topic as artists. How to start with composition and thumbnails. We have a couple spots left in some of these other workshops, abstract, drawing and painting, collage and mixed media experiments. And we have a Discord chat. Immediately after the stream, you can meet us in the post live stream stage channel to follow up on some more conversation. Join our Patreon group. It's a super fun place. You can share your art in weekly voice sessions. You can find support in a small group of artists instead of, what, 11,000 members, which is what we have now. You can get support and critiques from me to get skills and to develop your work further. You can sponsor a video. People are dying for the three-point perspective lecture. So we need somebody to step in and help support us. And I found a wonderful model here in Salt Lake City who is willing to do reference photos and posing, all these fun things that I definitely want to do. Check out our services. And thank you so much to our top Patreon supporters. You guys are amazing. Sticking around with us the way you have. Visit our prof.org. We have so much content on there that's not on YouTube. Use the search bar. Our prof has a podcast. It's available on Spotify and also on iTunes. And subscribe to our channel for more tutorials, critiques, and business tips. Everybody, thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time. Bye.